If you uh, have a Bible, please uh, open it to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. We're going to look at uh, one of the, the final things that Jesus says during his earthly life before his death uh, tonight uh, as we reflect on, on Scripture and on specifically uh, the death of Christ. Uh, Luke 23. Luke 23 is, is one of the, the four accounts of the crucifixion. Um, each of the, the gospel writers, of course, uh, highlight the, the final week and, and the death of Jesus. And, and it tells us something about how the early church saw the death of Jesus. And, uh, th that it was not Jesus' miracles and, and not Jesus' life and, and Jesus' good teachings that they thought were so central. But it was Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection that were uh, so utterly central. What Paul says was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and on the third day that he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. So we'll be looking at Luke 23, and, and specifically this story about the last request that we have record of that, that, that Jesus fulfilled during his earthly life. Uh, it's the, the story of Jesus and the thief on, on the cross, one of my favorite authors, an Anglican uh, evangelical uh, from, from the 19th century, a man named J.C. Ryle, said that, that these verses in, in Luke 23, Luke 23, 39 to 43, which is that, that story, uh, these verses deserve to be printed in letters of gold. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with him. I, I, I think this is a, a marvelous story, one that brings great hope and comfort uh, to us, and so I want to I want to take some time and reflect on that story with you tonight. So I'm going to to read, starting for for context in in verse 32, so Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also this inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And us. But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me 
in paradise. The, the setting, obviously, is the, the crucifixion. Jesus is led away to be crucified in this place called the Skull, Golgotha, uh, what we now call Mount Calvary. And he's crucified there with two, two criminals. We learn from the other Gospels that they're thieves. We don't know exactly what uh, the, the nature of their crime was. They may have been involved in, in some kind of political subversion in some way, um, but, but it's not clear. We just know that they're criminals, they're thieves, and, and they're crucified with, with Jesus. And I think it was meant to be a final insult to Jesus to have him crucified among common criminals. It, it showed just what his opponents thought of him. The Jews had no interest in giving him a particularly special death. They didn't want to honor him in any way. They didn't want to seem, uh, make him seem more important uh, than he was or, that, or than they thought he was. They wanted him tried and executed quickly. The Romans didn't care much for him. He was just another malefactor. He was just another troublemaker that was uh, causing tension in, in Jerusalem, and they wanted to be rid of him quickly. To them, Jesus was little different than these common criminals that they were executing. And as they crucify him, we, we read that the, the religious leaders who are, who are there, who have finally, in their minds, they finally won, they finally got Jesus, and, and they're, they're sneering at him, they're mocking him, they're, they're hurling abuses at him. It says that the soldiers, the Romans, who, who are doing the crucifying are, are mocking him as well as they had previously when they, when they put a crown of thorns on his head and they covered him in a purple robe and they beat him and spat upon him and, and mockingly bowed to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They continue that mockery as they, as they put him to death. We learn that, that one of the thieves... One of the criminals that's crucified alongside Jesus is joining in with this abuse. He's engaged in what one commentator called a frivolous forgetfulness of God. Here he was being executed, and all he could do was continue to, to mock and slander and blaspheme another human being, one who was the Son of God. But of all those present, we have this extraordinary example of one who did not mock, but instead trusted Jesus. One who maybe would be considered the most unlikely to do so. So as we look at this passage, specifically verses 39 to 43, we're going to look at two things. First, the thief's confession. And then second, the Lord's promise the thief's confession, and the Lord's promise. And then as we, as we go and as we, we draw um, wisdom and application out of those verses, I trust you'll find that the value of this passage far exceeds, infinitely exceeds its size. So let me pray for us uh, again, and we'll, and we'll get started. Father, on this Good Friday, uh, amid so much uncertainty and fear, we pray that you might open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Instruct us by what you've caused to be written, that we might find comfort and assurance and hope and certainty in the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we pray in his name. Amen. So first we'll, we'll look at the thief's confession. Uh, don't get the wrong impression with the word confession. Confession really just means to say the same thing or to agree. And so when we confess our sin, it simply means that we are agreeing with God's evaluation of our sin and what it deserves. When we confess our faith, we simply are agreeing with the testimony that God has given about his son. So that's what we're actually going to see in this. We see the thief uh, in what he says, and, and he only says five or six sentences or, or, or phrases, really. This is all that we have from him. But we see uh, in, in his confession, we see a confession of sin, and we see a confession of faith. Remarkable for, for this, this criminal who's being crucified. So first, we'll look at his confession of, of sin. Look again at, at verse 40. As the, as the other thief is, is hurling abuse at Jesus, um, says, the other, the, the other thief answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. It's three things as he confesses his sin here. First, he confesses his own sinfulness. He doesn't try to minimize his sin or compare it to anybody else. He doesn't try to wiggle his way out of, uh, of his situation by saying, I really, you got the wrong guy. I really shouldn't be here. I didn't, I didn't really do it. He rebukes his fellow thief, giving further evidence that he understood just why he was suffering as he was. But he says that we're suffering justly. He confesses his own sinfulness. He's, he's lived a life of, of wickedness, and now he's paying for it. He was experiencing what Moses had warned the Israelites about in Numbers 32. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and your sin will find you out. Not only does he confess his own sinfulness, he confesses the justice of the punishment that he's receiving for his sin. He recognizes his sinfulness, and he recognizes that his sin deserves a punishment. As he's rebuking the other thief, he acknowledges that not only had he sinned, but that the punishment that they're enduring is actually just. Now here he probably means the punishment that's being enacted by the Roman government, saying that, that the, the Roman tribunal that, that condemned them was not unjust. Uh, they were rightly applying the law. Um, he and, and the other thief, in, in the words uh, that, that he himself spoke, are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He recognizes that he's a sinner and he recognizes that his, his sin, uh, his sinful deeds deserve justice, punishment. But I think it's noteworthy that in addition to confessing his sinfulness and the justice of the punishment that he's, he's receiving, that he confesses a far greater fear of God's wrath against his sin. As, as his fellow thief is joining and railing against Jesus, this, this dying thief rebukes him, but he doesn't just rebuke him for being mean to Jesus. He reminds him that they're under the same sentence of condemnation 
And that condemnation is just. And, and if the condemnation of the Roman government is just and is resulting in their punishment, how much more will their condemnation by God be just? See, this thief had come to recognize, and exactly when and how, we don't exactly know, but he recognized that the primary thing that he needed to fear was not this present physical suffering that would really soon be over, but instead, as Jesus had said, the thing that he needed to fear most was him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so he rebukes his fellow thief by saying, do you not even fear God? It's as if he was saying, now is the time for you to seek mercy from God, not increase the debt of your sin by slandering and blaspheming an innocent man. You're facing a far greater condemnation than what you are experiencing now. And it doesn't seem to register with you at all. See, this thief recognized that though he was being crucified and he was suffering, perhaps in, in a way that no human being could suffer, uh, besides perhaps the Lord Jesus, crucifixion being perhaps the most painful type of, of execution ever devised by human beings, he recognized that of much greater concern was what he faced on the other side of death. It's, it's the same for us. This thief saw things more clearly than most people in his day, or for that matter, in our day. So the popular conception is that there's really no such thing as sin, and that in general people are not sinners. Or if people are sinners, it's, it's those people. It's not, it's not me. Even if people acknowledge that there's such a thing as sin, Perhaps that they are a sinner, they think there's really no consequence for sin. And certainly, God would not punish sin. It's the popular conception. But these assumptions run squarely against what the Bible teaches. Our failure to acknowledge our own sinfulness, our, 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 our liability to, to just punishment that our sin deserves. The fact that, that we largely deny these things is really rooted in the same thing that caused this thief, uh, the mocking, unrepentant thief, to not fear God. So we, we, we don't fear God. That was the issue. The thief didn't fear God, and, and the reason why many people today don't think our sin is a big deal is that we don't think God is a big deal. And that's a big problem. This other thief, the, the penitent thief, confessed that he was sinful, that his sin merited for him the punishment that he was undergoing and a far greater concern that it brought upon him the righteous punishments of God's justice, that he would face the moment after he died unless someone stopped, uh, stepped in to rescue him. And it's the same for us as the book of Hebrews tells us. It's appointed for man to die once and then to face judgment. The thief follows this stark confession of sin with a bold confession of faith in Jesus. It's very simple, but we see that even this thief at the last extremity of life casts himself on Jesus for mercy. So again, three things that he, that he confesses. Look what he says. As he said, we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, verse 41, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
And he's saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So first he confesses Jesus' innocence. And he says, this man has done nothing wrong. Unlike himself and the other thief, he recognizes that Jesus is innocent. He's suffering unjustly, that his condemnation was not right. The wording here suggests not that Jesus was innocent of the charge that, that led him to be crucified, but that he was altogether innocent, altogether free from sin. He was, in the words of Peter, a lamb unblemished and spotless. It's as if he recognized that Jesus was not dying because of his sin. So he must have been dying for a different reason. He not only confesses Jesus' innocence, but remarkably, he also confesses Jesus' kingship. Right? In his plea to Jesus, his, his prayer to Jesus in verse 42, he says that he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that's remarkable because at this point, Jesus probably looks the least like a king that he possibly could. And here this thief is recognizing that the one hanging on the cross there is indeed a king. He affirms his belief that Jesus is a king. See, he's the only one who sees that title nailed to the cross above Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He sees that not as a mockery, but as divine truth. The Romans, when they wrote that title, wrote it as, as an insult to Jesus. They didn't realize that they were actually writing that which was true. What they thought was an insult was actually a royal cipher hanging above him notifying all of creation that this is indeed the king. He affirms his belief that Jesus is a king, and he affirms his belief that Jesus is going to continue to exercise his kingly power on the other side of death. Right? He's, he's asking Jesus to do something, to remember him when, when Jesus comes into his kingdom means he, he thinks that there is an existence for Jesus on the other side of death and that, that Jesus is going to have this, this power to be able to do something. He's going to exercise his royal power and, and will be able to, to remember this thief. So this thief recognizes that there's something different about Jesus, that he is going to live past death and that he has a kingdom waiting for him, and he is going to reign in that kingdom. So he affirms his, his belief, he confesses his belief that Jesus is innocent. He confesses his belief that Jesus is, is indeed a king, and he confesses his belief that Jesus has the power to save him. Right? Not only does he recognize that Jesus is going to live beyond death, but like a good Jew, he, knew, he knows that he too is going to have life beyond death. And, and that existence could be either one of blessing or torment. He recognizes that the time is short for any difference to be made in, in the state of his life after death. And so what does he do? He does not ask Jesus to take him off the cross. 
That's what the mockers were doing. That's what the other thief was doing, right? Save yourself and get us off this cross. He's not asking Jesus to save him from the punishment that he was enduring. He doesn't ask Jesus to give him a place of prestige in his kingdom, right? And that's what James and John had been arguing about before. They wanted to sit in the, in the places of honor next to Jesus in his kingdom. This thief doesn't, doesn't ask for that. And he doesn't attempt to bargain with Jesus, and he doesn't attempt to, to argue for his innocence or claim that he's done enough that Jesus can remember him. He just, he just casts himself upon Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. He recognizes that Jesus is not just a king, but he is the one who is appointed to judge the living and the dead, whose word brings with it the true power to condemn or to save. So he calls on Jesus to remember him, to show him favor, and in so doing, he, he casts himself entirely on Jesus' mercy recognizing that apart from Jesus showing him mercy, remembering him, he has no hope whatsoever. And whether we realize it or not, our condition is more like that of the thief on the cross than it is different. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. We are all justly under the sentence of condemnation for our sin. And we also have no hope to do anything by which we can save ourselves. See, the thief was nailed to the cross. He had no ability to do, to do anything but hang there and cast his soul on Jesus. And it's the same for us. Spiritually speaking, we are so utterly unable to do anything good before God, any good works or religious codes or spiritual experiences as a means of pleasing God and receiving forgiveness of sins. We, have, we are so utterly unable to do that that we might as well be nailed to the cross like the thief. Now, why would this story be comforting? Well, if it ended here, the reality is that it wouldn't be that comforting at all. It might seem only to be the foolish desperation of a condemned and dying sinner rather than a bold confession of faith in a dying Savior. But... It is the Lord's words of promise in response to the thief's words of confession that make this story shine forth from the pages of Scripture and provides immeasurable comfort to those who love Jesus. So what does Jesus say in response to the thief? Luke 23, 43. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Three things that Jesus says to him. He promises the thief an immediate salvation. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. There would be no interval between the thief's death and his presence with the Lord. He would not need to spend more time having his sins purged away before Jesus would remember him. He would not have to, to wait in some heavenly waiting room until the day of judgment, only then to find out whether or not Jesus would remember him. Jesus says, this is going to happen today. But Jesus gives him far more than what he asks for. The thief asks only that Jesus will remember him when he, when he comes in his kingdom. And, and, and by that, the thief probably is looking forward to the end of time and the great judgment 
at, at the end, when Jesus sits as the judge of the resurrection, but Jesus says, I will do better than that. Today, in the span of a matter of hours, you will be with me in paradise. So there's no long line at the pearly gates waiting to hear your name called. Unlike what some of you have been taught, there's no place of purging, purgatory, to purify you before you can go to be with the Lord. The salvation offered by Jesus is an immediate salvation, something you immediately come into possession of. He promises an immediate salvation. Second, he promises a free salvation. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice that there's nothing that Jesus says to the thief uh, that, that, that he has to do, that he has to accomplish in order to receive the gift that Jesus is giving. He doesn't need to get baptized. He doesn't need to take communion. He doesn't need to join a church. He doesn't have to do good works or religious activities. He doesn't have to have all sorts of spiritual experiences. Now, as important as, as, as many of these things uh, might, might be, this thief quite literally can't do any of them. And if any of these things are necessary for salvation, then the thief is really in trouble. He has no time or ability to do any of these things. He can do nothing but in, in excruciating pain cry out to Jesus for mercy. That's just what he does. And that's all he needed to do. Jesus' response to this thief's plea for mercy is not to give him conditions on which he will be remembered. Nor does Jesus rebuke him for presuming that he would remember one who was so sinful and had done nothing to make any kind of restitution for his sin, for his life of thievery and wickedness. No. Jesus' response to the thief has no conditions, just promises. We see here a picture of the absolute freeness of the promise of salvation offered by Jesus. Salvation is entirely by grace and not in the least by works. If it were by works, then Jesus' statement to this dying sinner without any works to his record would be uh, the statement that, that this sinner would be with him immediately in paradise would be a lie. But Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, does no wrong in promising this thief salvation by grace alone. Because it's this way, and only this way, that God saves sinners. He promises an immediate salvation, a free salvation, and he promises a full salvation. He says to the, 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 the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the place of the righteous. It's the place where the righteous souls, those who trusted God, uh, would go after they, they died. The only way that Jesus could promise this thief who was unrighteous and had no time to do any good works of righteousness for himself. The only way that Jesus could promise this unrighteous thief that he would today be with Jesus himself in paradise would be if the punishment that 
that that thief deserved from the hand of God was entirely and sufficiently paid for by another in his place. And, and, and the life of perfect obedience, innocent righteousness that he ought to have lived was accomplished by another and counted for him. And this is, of course, what the Bible teaches that Jesus has done. On the cross, the innocent Son of God suffered and died in the place of sinners. And in doing so, he bore the wrath of God due to them for their sin and offers to them the perfect righteousness of his own life to count for them. Even as the thief suffered this bodily punishment for his crime at the hand of the Romans, Jesus was next to him suffering the punishment of God due to the thief for his sins, for my sins, for your sins. So we are right to confess when we recite the first question and answer of the, the Heidelberg Catechism that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong in body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully atoned for all of our sins. For Jesus to say, today you will be with me in paradise is a testimony to the fullness, the completeness, the sufficiency of the death of Christ to bear the wrath of God due to our sins. There was nothing more that needed to be paid by the thief in order to, to enter paradise. What we learn from this is that if, if we confess our sin to Jesus and confess our faith in Jesus, then we receive the same word of promise from Jesus. And this is what makes Good Friday good news. On that day that we die, a day known only to God, then we too will be able to to take comfort in the promise of Jesus. Today you will be with me in paradise. So briefly then, I just want to reflect uh, on this passage for, for a few more minutes and, and, and offer some words of, of, of application. But first, I think this, this passage teaches us not to doubt Christ's promise of salvation. Don't doubt Christ's promise of salvation. Don't doubt that his promised salvation is immediate. If you're trusting Christ for your salvation, you are already in possession of that eternal life that he promised. You're not on probation. There's no suspense about when you'll receive your certificate of life. Your salvation is immediate. You are, before God, righteous. Don't doubt that his promised salvation is free. As believers in Christ, I think we struggle at one time or another with thinking that there's really something that we need to do in order to help God save us or convince God to save us. We, we can't fathom a salvation that is truly free, all of grace. But the story of the thief on the cross illustrates that this is exactly how God saves. By grace alone. We simply receive 
what another has done for us, and it counts for us. His promised salvation is immediate, it is free. Don't doubt that his promised salvation is full. There's nothing more that you need to do to contribute to your salvation. Jesus has paid it all. The work of Jesus on the cross, bearing the wrath of God against sin in the place of sinners, is entirely sufficient. There is no lack in it whatsoever. And so there is no lack in the salvation that is promised through it. If you believe you are not partly saved and partly condemned, or may be saved and may be condemned, all of your condemnation has fallen upon Jesus. So all of the blessing of forgiveness, salvation, and new life might come to you. And don't doubt that this promised salvation is for you. Even if you believe that salvation, the, the salvation that Christ offers is immediate and free and full, you, you still may struggle to believe that it really could be for you. You may say, well, the, the thief on the cross could be sure that it was for him. Jesus spoke to him directly. But how can I be sure that this promise is for me? But Jesus himself offers this promise elsewhere and does so indiscriminately. Everyone, he says in John 6:40, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Are you included in everyone? And this promise is for you too. If you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, you've, if you've put the matter of your salvation, your forgiveness before God into his hands and you've taken your hands off of it, if you put it into his crucified hands, then you do not need to, to fear about what the future holds for you. Here again, the promise of Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not will have in the future, but has right now eternal life. The thief on the cross stands as a testimony to all people that God is both willing and able to save even the greatest sinner at the last extremity of life. There is no sin so great that it cannot be atoned for by the blood of Jesus. And there is no sinner so far gone that God will not receive them. Remember again the words of Jesus, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So do not doubt that the promise is spoken as directly to you as if Jesus himself were here speaking it to you. So don't doubt Christ's promise of salvation. And second, don't delay your coming to Christ. Don't delay your coming to Christ because you think there will be time later. Some may hear this story and think that because the thief on the cross was saved moments before his death, that, that they can delay coming to Christ until their deathbed. There will be time at the end, and, and, and then I'll take God seriously. But don't presume upon his mercy, because you do not know the day appointed for your death. We've all been reminded of the truth of our mortality recently some of us more than others. Let's remember that only God knows when we will pass into the next world. And this story, I think, instructs us not to let another moment go by before you confess 
your sin and look to Jesus for a free, full, and immediate salvation from your sins. The old writers used to say about this story that one thief was saved so that none might despair, but only one was saved that none might presume. So don't delay coming to Christ because you think there will be time later. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And don't delay coming to Christ because you think you need to get better before you come. Jesus didn't promise salvation to this thief because he had cleaned himself up, done enough good works, and worked up enough good feelings to prove his sincerity. He came to Jesus the only way he possibly could, a desperate sinner, entrusting himself to a dying Savior. Do you feel your need of a Savior? Then cast yourself upon Christ as the thief did. Rely wholly on him for your salvation and you most certainly shall be saved because this is what God has promised in his word. There is nothing left to accomplish. Jesus has done everything. You need only receive it. In the words of William Cooper's hymn, There is a Fountain. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain, the death of Christ, his blood shed for us. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Lord Jesus, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and majesty and strength for you were slain and by your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. Oh God, we bless you that you, you have counted we who believe among that number Lord, I pray that, that your word would not return void, and that as we reflect on, on this wonderful story about, about this thief saved at the last moment of his life, as we see illustrated the, the, the truth of divine grace, we pray that that believers would draw great comfort and hope and assurance from that. And Lord, those who, who are watching, who may not have assurance, may not believe that they would be drawn to this Savior who offers a full and free and immediate salvation. 